So let's, let's recap verse or chapter by chapter here. Chapter 1. I could give you a pop quiz and see how much you remember, but I won't do that. Chapter 1. God creates everything out of nothing. Chapter 2. God creates man, Adam and Eve, male and female. Chapter 3. The serpent, Satan, deceives Adam and Eve, and they sin against God and are banished from the Garden of Eden. Chapter 4. Adam and Eve have two sons, and one of them kills the other out of jealousy. Chapter 5, Moses records the lineage of Adam to Noah. Chapter 6, the earth is more corrupt than ever. So God tells Noah, whom he found favor with, to build an ark because he was determined to make an end of all flesh. Chapter 7, Noah and his family are in the ark and are protected from the wrath of God in the flood. Chapter 8, the floodwaters subside. Noah gets out and worships God. Chapter 9, God makes a covenant with Noah and all flesh, and then Noah gets drunk, and the shame of Ham to look on his father's nakedness causes Canaan's curse on his lineage. Chapter 10, Moses records then the lineage of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 11, God disperses mankind at the Tower of Babel because of their sin, and then Moses records Shem's lineage to Abram. Chapter 12, God chooses Abram to be the father of a nation. And then Abram lies about Sarai's identity in Egypt to try to get some food. Chapter 13, Abram and Lot separate because they were too wealthy. And then Abram gave Lot first dibs and Lot goes to Sodom. Chapter 14, Abram involves himself and his men in a war of different kings to rescue Lot from captivity, and then he gets a blessing from Melchizedek. Chapter 15 is what we'll find out today. As you can see, the book of Genesis is a bunch of highs and lows, isn't it? A winding road. Uh, There are scenes of great worship and, and adoration and obedience and trust of God, and then there are scenes of great sin and turning away from God and, and, and uh, corruption. And since we've been primarily in the New Testament for the last several months, it's good to remind you of how we interpret the Old Testament. All 66 books of the Bible are considered God's inerrant, infallible, trustworthy, utterly divine word. But we don't interpret it all the same way, through the same methods. Genesis, in particular, is a history book. It's God's Word, but it contains history. So we read it like it's history, right? It's not a book about us. It's a book about God and what God has done. That means when we take application from the book, we need to be careful because what God said to Abram isn't ours to lay claim on. Just because God promised to give Abram a son doesn't mean He promises to give us children. Just because God rescued Lot from captivity does not mean He will rescue us when we are in affliction. It's not about us. It's about God and the revelation of Himself to real historic people, right? And if we keep that in mind, there are two threads we can follow through the whole book. The first thread is the increasing spread of sin and corruption over the whole earth. As soon as we gain some respect for Adam or Noah or 
uh, Abram, the very next chapter, they let us down, right? Sin is just laying ruin to the earth. Uh, I think often of, of this uh, idea of the, the movie Ice Age, you know, the, the terrible little uh, squirrel, nut, chipmunk, whatever that thing is, right? He's always after the nut. And that scene where the, the nut gets lodged in the, in the iceberg, and then the crack just goes and 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 goes, and, goes and, goes and then, you know, everything just falls apart, right? And so this is the spread of sin, right? Adam fell, Eve fell. Sin came into the world, and so we can follow its progression through the whole storyline of Scripture. But the second thread is that even though these people sin, God is still faithful. God never stops being God. He continually gives grace to His chosen ones, and He does what He says He will do. Now, some other paperwork to go over. Daniel, Lacaria, you remember Brother Daniel? He preached the first six verses of this chapter back in August, and he did a wonderful job. I'm going to try to preach the whole chapter to give you context and the big picture of what's going on here, what happened that day in Abram's life, um, but we're not going to spend as much time on the first six verses. Uh, Daniel's sermon is online, though, if you want to go back and listen for further study. Uh, chapter 15, though, is the perfect place to get back into the book. It's literally one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. It's what we Bible nerds call the Abrahamic Covenant. Really what Bible nerds do is they just make adjectives out of people's names. Uh, the Abrahamic Covenant, so you've got the Adamic, Adam, Covenant, Covenant with Adam, Noahic, Covenant with Noah, now the Covenant with Abram. Uh, we want to follow these covenants. They're very, very important. Um, this is a text that all of Israel would have rejoiced in for years to come. This was no ordinary covenant. This was the beginning of a nation. And what we need to understand about the covenants that God makes with man is that they are permanent. They're not temporary, right? And, and, and they're, they're permanent so much so that man cannot undo them. What God says is put in stone. We think of a covenant as a contract or a promise, right? But for the Lord and His covenants, this is a serious, binding relationship that should be considered unchangeable. We consider the covenant of works. We're talking about the relationship God had with His people in which they had to work through various law-keeping and animal sacrifices to make atonement for their sins. This was the covenant of works. When we consider the covenant of grace, we're talking about the relationship that God now has with man, His people, in which we have Christ as our covering, as grace for our sins. And we consider our very own church covenant that we make with one another. We're talking about the relationship that we have together before God and how we decide to treat each other. And here in one of the greatest climaxes in the whole Bible, God makes a covenant with Abram, this moon worshiper that he grabbed a hold of and was going to do something awesome with. He revealed himself to Abram, and now he promises to make a nation out of him. And this would be very important, important for Israel's future. Four promises in this text. The promise of offspring, promise of land, promise of suffering, and the promise of hope. We'll try to move quickly. Verses 1 through 3. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So after these things, to give you some, some context of chapter 14, Abram had just risked it all, right, to save Lot uh, in a war that he had nothing to do with it. Right? Abram is on top right now. He'd messed up in Egypt, and he humbled himself before the Lord. He's, he's reestablished his relationship with God and to trust Him. And in humility and generosity, he goes to rescue Lot. And as a result, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem go to Abram after the war is done to sort of talk about what happens next. You know, you win the battle, you get the stuff, right? You win the, you, 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 you win the battle, you get the prize. So Abram was... First gets this blessing from mysterious king Melchizedek, who is a foreshadowing of Christ. And then the king of Sodom is like, listen, give me the people, you can have the stuff. What do you think? Deal? And then uh, Abram is like, nah, I know the possessor of heaven and earth, so I don't really need you to make me rich. Thanks, but no thanks. Chapter 15, God speaks after these things. The word of the Lord came to Abram. This is a phrase used of prophets uh, that, that God chose to reveal himself to, to, to warn Israel or his people about some coming thing. And it follows suit here. This is a prophetic encounter for Abram. And what we're going to see in this passage is a sequence that repeats twice. God speaks. Abram questions God. God gives a visual demonstration. So again, God speaks. Abram questions God. And God gives a visual demonstration. The first thing that God speaks to Abram is concerning what just took place. The Lord says, fear not, I am your shield. Your reward, your prize, your gift shall be very great. Better than anything Sodom could have offered you. And Daniel talked about the Hebrew here, which is difficult to interpret. Some translations may say, I am your very great reward, as well as a shield. Uh, We know this to be true. God is the giver of all good things, which makes him the greatest gift himself. However, there is a specific reward named in this chapter. Abram asks, what will you give? I don't have any kids, right? I can't give anything away that you have to give to me. All I have is Eliezer of Damascus. And we don't know who Eliezer of Damascus is. This is the only time he's mentioned. Uh, He was probably someone that Abram met along the way. Maybe a servant in his house. But what we see is that Abram still has this natural bent to get God's blessing through his own means, right? Since God hasn't given me a son, I guess I'll make Eliezer my heir. That will be further realized when we meet a certain servant named Hagar. But in Abram's doubts, God still shows patience and grace, doesn't he? He responds with a visual demonstration. He says, look towards heaven. Number the stars if you can number the stars, Abram. And that starry night would become the expectation for all the children of Israel. And even now, you and I can look to the stars and know that God has merged Gentiles with His people and the stars cannot be counted still today of the disciples that have been made through the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? We've become children of Abram through Jesus. And it all started with an old man who had no children. Abram's doubt Turns to belief in verse 6. We have this verse that's a a big deal 
God counted Abram's belief then as righteousness, which is a verse that could turn into ten sermons if we had the time. Daniel taught very well on how this applies to New Covenant life today. We know of what the Lord, uh, the, the Lord gave to Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4. Paul knew the importance of this. He said, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We can have our faith counted to us as righteousness because of what Christ has done. If we believe in him who raised him from the dead. This is a time, of course, before the Levitical law was established, teaching Israel how to have a functional relationship with Yahweh, how to atone for their sins through sacrifice. Moses is showing us in this record that God valued trust and obedience from the beginning. It was so vital that trusting and following the Lord could even count as a righteousness before the Lord our God, with which without we would perish. We are not righteous. It shows us that God alone can make us righteous to stand before His sight. Abram believed. Do you believe? Do you believe in God? Do you believe that He's trustworthy? And do you realize what you're saying when you say you believe in God in a world full of pain and torment and chaos and confusion? That you believe in a good and faithful God who is sovereign over all life? Belief in God is lunacy in the world's eyes. And it will be a great cost to our devotion to God if uh, we choose to believe Him in a world that hates Him and with a flesh that battles Him and doesn't want anything to do with Him, as Jay shared. And speaking of what Jay shared, I was already going to share about Acts chapter 5. You beat me to the punch, so I don't have to give any context, Right? I was listening to a Vody Bauckham uh, sermon this week. You know Vody, he's been doing this, this uh, preaching thing all over America right now. And um, he was preaching on Acts chapter 5. I just heard this great little blip of him uh, sort of giving this depiction of what that conversation was like with the apostles and the Sanhedrin, the council that day. They're preaching, they're healing people, they're doing all this stuff right. The angel gets them out of jail. They start going to preach again in the temple the very next day. They found them in the temple. They said, look, we need to talk. The apostles sat before uh, the council. The council says, we need you to stop teaching in this name. And then here's where Vodi sort of animates their back and forth. And he, he, he quotes the Sanhedrin saying, if you don't stop preaching, we're going to take away everything you own. And they say, well, we already gave away all of our possessions to share with the brethren of the church. And so they get back together, the council talks, and they say, okay, if you don't stop preaching in this name, we're going to put you in jail. And they say, the jail that the angel broke us out of last night? And they sort of get back together, and they, they go, hold on, hold on. If you don't stop preaching in that name, we will kill you. He says, you mean like you killed him Amen. when he raised from the dead three days later? Amen. Belief in God has major consequences. And yet at the same time, we have no choice but to believe in God because he's right. He's right. We must believe in the Lord no matter the consequences. He is right. 
So the Lord continues speaking to Abram and he gives him this promise of offspring now, this promise of land. Look at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, and he cut them in half, and he laid them half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now God speaks again here both of a promise and a future. This is the first time God spoke in reference to a prophecy. This is the second time God speaks as a covenant maker. This is the same phrasing used in Exodus chapter 20 when God makes a covenant with uh, Moses. He says in Exodus 20 as he's getting ready to do the Ten Commandments, right? He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, this is appropriate. This is exactly what he's doing with Abram now. I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Ur. And this is appropriate because these verses have all, everything to do with Israel's future and Egypt and where they're headed. And it will turn out that the promised land to Abram is the same promised land to Moses. But following the sequence, right, Abram asks, how? How will I know I am to possess it? It's kind of strange because you see in verse 6 or so, he says, you know, Abram believed. And now Abram's questioning him again. And I think Pastor Kent Hughes says it well. This is Abram saying, I believe. Help my unbelief. Right? He believes God will do what he says he will do, but he's groping for how this will actually come to be. How? I know none of us have ever been in that situation, though, right? Asking the Lord how things will turn out. In our case, we have the Holy Spirit and the Word to give us wisdom to keep uh, trusting the Lord with His promises. In Abram's case, he had animal carcasses and fire. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit, personally. But he begins the next visual display. And God tells Abram to gather these different animals cut them in half, except for the birds, lay them on top of each other, and then some birds come down, right? Some say this is a cultural practice from Abram's land in Mesopotamia that, you know, would have showed a formal covenant or treaty. There may be some truth to that, but this is more about God teaching something of the future of Israel. All of these five animals would become written into the sacrificial system in one way or another. And the animals themselves represent the coming nation of Israel. We fondly remember the starry night. We aren't so keen on remembering the animal carcasses. These animals weren't used for sacrifices. They were used to show Abram how they will be given this special land. Our first clue is found in verse 11. When Abram shoes the birds away, they come down to pick on the carcasses. This is a picture of evil that is soon coming against Israel. They will lay bare, suffering as though dead, but they will be protected. And it's interesting. Egypt's like God bird thing that they worshipped was like a prey bird. It would come down and eat uh, dying things. And so for the answer to how God will give this land is not a pleasant one. It is through suffering that God will give this land. The promise of suffering, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. 
Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So it looks like a whole day has gone by because there's a starry night, you know, initially, then they're outside looking at the stars together, and evidently the, Abram spent the whole next day preparing these animals and cutting these animals in two. And then as the sun is going down again, a dreadful, dark, terrifying sleep comes upon Abram. And this is to signify to us that he is in the presence of God as a sinner. And in terrifying darkness, the Lord begins to explain Israel's future suffering. And Abram asked how. God God gave a little bit more than how in this example. He gave who. He gave why. He gave when. He said, Abram's offspring will be sojourners and servants in another land. They will be afflicted there 400 years. We know those offspring to be Israel. We know that land to be Egypt. We know that affliction to be slavery. You know the story, Genesis 50? Joseph would become a great prominent leader in Egypt, leading Abram's Abram's lineage into that land. We read clearly in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And we all learned in vacation Bible school, right? Let my people go, says Moses. Let my people go. Let my people go. Oh, why didn't we teach our children about God ordaining Israel's suffering? Why didn't we teach that? God does promise to judge the nation that persecutes His people. But it's the same God who brought the suffering. I'm sure Abram wasn't expecting to hear this. And here comes the real kicker for Abram in this dreadful sleep. He's not going to be around to see any of it. You're going to die. You're going to go to your fathers in peace. In a good old age. Abram learns in this dream that his offspring will suffer for 400 years. He will die soon. And the iniquity of the Amorites, the wicked offspring of Canaan, will rule for 400 more years. Let's get deep here for a minute. Everybody get a little deep? Got your floaties on? 
God is sovereign over evil. God is sovereign over evil. God is not the author of evil. Nor does he approve of any evil deed. But he is the God who is sovereign over evil. I know some Christians find this very difficult to cope with. Right? This is a hard teaching. But family, this is simply what the Bible says. And speaking of Joseph, we know what Joseph said. And we love to quote it. What you meant for evil, my brothers... God meant for good. Who are we to put our standard against God? Who are we to say what good can come from this? Who are we to say what good can come of 400 years of slavery? What good can come out of the debauchery and the immorality of the Amorites? What good can come out of my death, God? What good can come out of suffering in my life? And we say, I can't worship this God. But then what does the Lord say about Himself? In Isaiah 45. Declare and present your case. Do it, I dare you. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? I did. Who declared this long ago? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. I said it, and it came to be. Do you realize what this means? This means that every tiniest, minute detail of history was foretold by God long ago. Every part. Every single hardship in your life was foretold by God long ago. That means God not only knows our suffering, God ordained our suffering. Dr. John Gerstner said it this way. There is no such thing for tragedy for the Christian. Only the unbeliever experiences tragedy. They go through life rebelling against God, heaping up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. This is tragic. But for the believer, every vile, most despicable, unthinkable form of suffering we go through is ordained by God for our good. Evil is still evil. And suffering is still painful. We don't need anybody to tell us that, right? But we have to recognize the authority of God in every affliction. And since we're already in the deep waters, if you don't believe in predestination yet, what does the Lord say about Abram's death? You're going to your fathers. That's where I have ordained that you are going. He didn't say... Uh, that you're, you know, going to obey me first and then do all these good things and then because, you know, you know, no, he says you're going to be with your fathers. God is sovereign over every affliction, over every part of life. And here's the reality of heaven in the Old Testament, right? This is truly amazing. 
God predestined Abram to go to be with his fathers to the praise of his glory. Didn't he? To the praise of his glorious grace. Rejoice that God is not only sovereign over evil, but even over our heavenly home. The building made without hands that we discussed last week. I'm glad I'm not in control of that place. God is, right? And no man gets there but through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and atonement through his blood. But it is God who masterfully brings us home. As he says in Jude, of him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The next time you you start catching yourself in your mind going through that, what good can come of this? What good can come of this? What good can come of this? Ask yourself, what good can come of a cross? What good can come from the crucifixion of an innocent man? What good can come from an angry mob of Jews screaming hatred and lies of murder over the Son of God? What good can come from nail-pierced hands and feet? What good can come from water and blood flowing from his side? What good can come from a borrowed tomb, church? What good can come three days later? The same God who ordained the suffering in your life is the same God who ordained the suffering of Jesus Christ. And from it came all the good in the world. From it came the very righteousness of Christ credited on our behalf that all who would believe in the risen Christ would have Him to intercede for our sins. This is good news. Come and believe. See this good thing that has happened through wicked, vile suffering that God has allowed. Suffering hurts, I know. But God has predestined more than suffering for us. God has predestined life and life abundantly. The Amorites may live today, but God is seeing their cup of wrath fill up to the brim and He will not overlook their sins. And our suffering may be alive today, but the cross stands as a reminder of our coming victory. Do you believe that? All this to show Abram that suffering was the pathway to glory. It was for Christ. It was for Abram. And it is for us. God's covenants are not about cruel pain towards his children, but are about hope for tomorrow. So look, let's see this last one, the promise of hope. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river Euphrates, or from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The sun is going down again. But in another sense, it seems that the sun is coming up, as there's this promise of hope and land and future. There in the dark night was a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. And Abram watched with his eyes a mile wide open as they passed between the carcasses. And you'll remember 
how the Lord led Israel out of Egypt. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And here was this ceremony of fire dancing around the animals, communicating to Abram two things. One, this is how God will lead his people into freedom and into the Canaan land. He will do it. Secondly, God would be as good as one of those dead animals if it didn't come true. This is how I'm going to do it, and if I don't do it, I'm good as dead. And thus the covenant was complete. And we know our God is not dead. Abram would never get to see the day when his offspring would inherit this great land, but we have the record. And we know that Abram inherited a far greater land than anything on this earth. The greatest test for him now was going to be to trust the Lord who keeps his promises. And the greatest test for us is the same. Do you trust the Lord who keeps his promises even in the midst of suffering? Do you really trust the Lord? Do you trust him for your future? Do you trust him when you go to sleep at night? Do you trust him for your family, for your marriage, for your children? Do you trust him for your income and your daily bread, your provision? Do you trust that his timing is perfect, even if it be 400 years later? Do you trust that his wisdom is best, even if you can't make sense of it? Do you trust him for this church, that he truly knows the best blueprints for a church and not us? Do you trust Him in sickness and in health? Do you trust Him in suffering and in joy? Do you trust Him when the billows roll? Do you trust Him when joy comes in the morning? Do you sing with David in Psalm 31? But I trust in You, O Lord. I say, You are my God. My times are in your hand. We have all the reason in the world to trust this God, the only God. For we have an even better covenant than Abram's, don't we? We have the covenant of Christ. As Paul says perfectly in Galatians 3, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and you are Christ. Then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
we've seen Abram's covenant come to completion, do you believe God will return for us in Christ as well? I believe He will. Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.